Good morning. Uh, we continue touching on the themes that were so important in our reset conference. We began with the idea that repentance has a goal of a heart that is for God, a heart that is oriented towards God. Yesterday, I began a theme that that we, in some ways, we picked up all through the conference, and that is that a heart for God is a heart oriented towards freedom. But it is always the biblical definition of freedom. So I wanted to pick up on that and then Thursday and Friday talk about how we how we get free and how we maintain our freedom. But today we want to talk about what Paul uh, defines and describes as freedom. So again, this is uh, Galatians 5, which is also the chapter where we see the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of our freedom. So here's Paul in verse 5. He says, For, the, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Again, what, what counts in the spiritual uh, values is faith working itself through love. And he, then he talks to him, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So, I mean, here, here is Paul very bluntly saying there is only one gospel and there's only one order to that gospel. You don't clean yourself up. You don't make your works righteous and then become acceptable to God. Rather, Paul is saying, it is all based on Jesus alone and Jesus' finished work. So, we live before God and He is a God who is always and undividedly holy, pure, and in everything truthful. So, if you were to see this vision, this raw vision of God's goodness, just His goodness, that alone would undo you, much less if you were to see Him in the fullness of His glory. In some ways, you see, when people are offering their own righteousness, it means they've never experienced, they've never seen God or understood that they can't see God in the fullness of his glory. Here's Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah where he's been devoted to God. He's been a man holier than other people and yet he saw this vision of God and he was undone. He thought for sure he was going to die in the presence of God because his own impurities and weaknesses were so exposed and nothing could be hidden. So, what Paul is talking about here is something we talked about a little bit yesterday. What is real freedom? Well, it's to walk unashamedly before God 
and to live unashamedly near God. So how do I live before such a holy God in such, in, in such utter transparency where I'm not hiding, I'm not rationalizing, justifying, but actually I'm living in this unashamed way before him. So the context of the letter to the Galatians is that there were these teachers who had come to the churches, and these were primarily Gentile churches. And uh, these teachers were Judaizers. They were um, of Jewish descent and had, in a way, mixed the gospel of Christianity with the uh, Jewish religion, Jewish tradition and law-keeping. And so they came in with their authority, sounding like authorities, and they said, you must make yourself acceptable to God. And you do so by fulfilling all the works of the law. When Paul talks about circumcision and uncircumcision, he's talking about the difference between those who keep the law and those who do not keep the law. And so these teachers had come in and said, you can't be acceptable to God unless you keep the law. And only then can you be right and accepted by God. Now, they never denied the need for Jesus or need for belief in Jesus, but they said that belief in Jesus was not enough. You must, by your own um, drivenness, activity, devoutness, you must be obedient to the moral and the ceremonial law. So even uh, we find that these guys were so convincing that even Peter and Barnabas compromised with these teachers. And so Paul writes this letter, and I, I guess for me, I just can't, can't get enough of this idea, that you are called in this life, not just in the life to come, but in this life, you're called to walk unashamedly before God. And the fact that, that you and I uh, are in Christ, we are we are enabled, we are, we're called to, we're asked to, I'm saying, live unashamedly near God. And this is what Paul calls true freedom. This is what the Holy Spirit calls true freedom, is to live unashamedly before God. Now, if you are hearing me, you will realize on the basis of your own works, on the basis of your morality, on the basis of your obedience, even on the basis of your own standards, you cannot live unashamedly before God, and you cannot live unashamedly near God. This is why you must abandon your own works of righteousness. This is why you must abandon you know, your own sense of morality, and you must say, I cling to Christ. Because only Jesus was able to walk unashamedly. And only Jesus was able to live unashamedly near God. He could walk before God, he could live near God, unashamedly and only because you are in him and only because of his record can you do so so that even when it is revealed to you areas of weakness brokenness areas of sin in your life you are able to go unashamedly to God not on your record but on his record because if he's revealing weakness if he's revealing areas of struggle he's doing so to heal you not not simply to reveal in something in such a way that you might be ashamed, but to reveal it so that you're not ashamed. You see, if the basis 
of anything going on in your life is something other than what Galatians 5, 6 says, then it doesn't count. It counts for nothing. Galatians 5, 6 says the only thing that counts is your faith. And what is it faith in? Faith in, in Christ Jesus' perfectly obedient life, his substitutionary death, his right being risen from the dead, and being ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. It's your faith that that is enough, that Jesus only, Jesus plus nothing. And then that that expresses itself, one, in that you feel so loved by the Father, so loved by the presence of the Spirit, and you have enough love then to share with others. So the motivation, Paul says, for your life is everything. So what is it to be free? Well, it means to have a new motive. Look at what he said. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then he says this persuasion to go back to the bondage of moral obligation, the bondage of performance-based acceptance is not from the one who calls you. It's not God's voice. See, obeying the truth is a vital part of the Christian life. Paul is not saying the truth doesn't matter. See, the Galatians think that they're obeying God, but Paul is saying that if you obey God for the wrong reasons, it's just as bad as not obeying. It's disobedience either way. See, your intent, your reason is everything. It's interesting. Uh, I've been a pastor for so many years, and one of the issues that I have is when we deal with church discipline or, or spiritual discipline in somebody's life. And what happens to us, because we, we cannot know precisely what people's motives are, and sometimes people themselves don't know what their motives are, but we can get much angrier at people when we attribute motives to their behavior. Some people we, we let off with lying, we let off with exaggeration, but others... We, won't, we will not cut them any slack because we attribute motives to their behavior. And it's so interesting that really, as human beings, we're called to deal with one another on the basis of behavior, not on the basis of motives, but we do it anyway. God, who sees the heart, can always get to the heart of the matter, and for Him, what matters is not the behavior, but the motives, because it's the heart of the matter, it's the heart that he's going for, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of these things is what God is after. So your intent, your reason is everything. See, there is, even if what you're doing is right, yet the motive is wrong, then that, that means that you're living in falsehood. And you can't have falsehood and it be the truth. A heart that's still filled with pride, with fear, with competition. It doesn't matter what you do, in a sense, in the spiritual realm. It's still the pride, the fear, and the competition that matters. See, what Paul is really after, and this is what this is where our reset has to really find its roots. If you think obeying the law in some way is the way you're winning God's favor favor, then you're actually disobeying by not really, not really understanding or listening to the law. You see, if you look to the law at all, 
you will see that none of us even comes close. This is why Paul uses the illustration of circumcision. Because he says, there are some of you who are saying you have to be circumcised. But he says, if you're going to count on circumcision, now you've taken yourself out of the realm of grace. And you've said, I'm going to be judged on the basis of my performance. Well, if you read the law (laughs) and you're judged on the basis of the law, you fail miserably. Even the most devout, religious, observant people are failing miserably because they cannot keep the whole law. Judgment will not come when it comes to the law. Judgment will not come by comparison. Judgment will come by comparison of the law itself to your actual life. This is why Paul is saying, do not mix this up. This is why he's mad at those who are teaching. He's saying, I want them to be damned. I mean, I I want them cut off. He, he, He says it in no uncertain terms, you see. Because if people get confused about this and mix up, okay, I'm going to be right with God because... I'm keeping the law. You are. You will be an utter failure. That's what Paul is saying. And he did it better than anybody, and yet he, he was so far from God. I mean, one, one person says it this way. If, if you were challenged, then the, the only way you could survive is you had, to, you had to swim from California to Hawaii. Now, some of us might swim farther than others, but we're all going to drown. And what happens when we try to get acceptance with God on the basis of the law, some might do better than others, but everybody drowns. No one lives up to it except for Jesus. And so that's why we have to abandon any acceptance by God on the basis of our performance. And it has to be that we utterly realize the only thing that counts is our faith in Jesus that expresses itself in love. External devoutness will never save you. Even the external devoutness will end up having it to where your heart condemns you. Paul's so brilliant. He says, look, by trying to observe the law, you're actually violating the law. There's no way to win there. And so he goes back and he says, because when you're trying to gain acceptance from God, by keeping the law, you've already violated the law. You haven't loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength because your motivation is everything. He said something so interesting. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch. See, persuasion. What is persuasion about? Well, it's about convincing us, us of something. And what Paul is saying is that underneath this, this lie that sounds like the truth. You know, you should keep the law. You will find acceptance from God if you keep the law. It sounds, it sounds reasonable. It's a little bit of leaven. But he's saying it's convincing you to trust in your own obedience, never looking at why you're trusting in your own obedience. You see, you're trusting in your own obedience out of fear and pride. The problem that most of us have isn't, you know, that we can't do some things that comply with the law. The problem is why we do it. So one of my favorite illustrations of this is why 
why on the basis of, you know, keeping the law, would I tell the truth and not lie? Well, the problem is, if I tell the truth, I'm telling it because I'm, you know, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the consequences of not telling the truth. Or maybe I'm prideful in that I don't want to be that kind of person who doesn't tell the truth. I don't want to be discovered as a liar because that something I do not value. I value, you know, I value my reputation. I value my honor. So what's the basis of my not telling a lie? It's fear and pride. But when I do tell a lie, why, why have I told a lie? For the same, it's the same motivation. I told a lie because I'm afraid of the truth. I'm afraid of getting caught. I, I tell a lie because I want people to think I'm better than I am. I don't want them to find out that I'm a fraud, so I tell a lie. So whether I tell the truth or I tell a lie, my motivation is exactly the same. And it's a false motivation that God himself will not, will not go, oh, you know, it's okay, you told, you told the truth. No, he's going to say, you lied with your heart in both cases. And in both cases, your heart was far from me. And so false motivation has to be put off. If I'm to be free, if you're to have a heart that is oriented to freedom, then you have to realize what the Holy Spirit's going after is false motivation. So, you know, you you think back to your own training. I think back to mine, you know, teaching in a more morality or obedience kind of teaching and compliance was you need to be good. You need to be noble. You need to be a person of dignity. Those are, all, those are all good things, but the problem is it never deals with the inner problem of sin and death. You see, only the gospel goes after the real problem, that we're so lost and we're so evil that Jesus had to die for us. But we're so loved that he chose to die for us. You know, growing up, getting grades, you know, getting... Uh, classifications, getting, you know, acceptance and all of these things through performance. Teachers would basically be saying to you, if you don't live up to the standards, you are rejected. It's only in the gospel that you realize, I can't live up to the standards. I will never live up to the standards. And yet, because Christ lived up to the standards for me, I will never be rejected. I will never be forsaken. You see, there are some of us, we've worked so much harder than other people and we're so proud of how much we've sacrificed and how much we've been driven to succeed that we don't realize that we've blinded our eyes. We've blinded our eyes to the need we have for the gospel. And, and truthfully, many of us, many of us grew up in churches where where just like school, we were told, be good, be noble. And it was all external. It was all, you know, and if you're not, if you don't live up to this morality, if you don't live up to this certain, you know, set of rules, then you're rejected. So even the church has been a place of performance. Even the church has been a place of, of rejection, a lack of acceptance, unless you live up to what everybody thinks you should live up to. Never understanding, even in the church, the good news of the gospel, that all of us are so broken, so lost, so evil, that the only way we could get right with God 
was for the perfect one, the Son of God himself, to become our substitute, to die on the cross for our sins. And until you realize how lost and evil you are, his sacrifice will never make sense to you. See, the gospel is about, it's okay, it's okay for, for me to be uncovered as broken because I'll never be rejected. It's okay for me to face my motivations and no longer lie about why I do what I do. Because when you're no longer fear-based, you see, that's what the law is, and that's what performance is. It is all fear-based. And only when you really say, I have nothing but the gospel of Christ, but this is all that I need, then you can say, I no longer have to live in fear. I no longer have to live in anything but love. Most of us grew up with the only motive for living was like fear-based. The only way we could, you know, we were, we were motivated to live a holy life was the fear of consequences. In the gospel, the only motivation for living a holy life is the love that Christ has shown to us. You know, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. And so Paul goes back and he, and I, I think this is one of the most important emotion, emotions in the human life. It's the, it's the emotion hope. And I, I don't think you can live in faith without hope. But hope for many of us is, is kind of anticipation in the midst of uncertainty. It's, it's wishful thinking sort of thing. The Bible never has hope that way. Hope is always about certainty in the scripture. It's about the future, but it's about an absolute certainty. And for you to experience hope, you have to have an absolute conviction about your future. So where is our hope, Paul says? Well, it's the certainty of righteousness now. You, you may be somebody who has a, a very you know, bad past, or you may be going through times of weakness right now, or mired in, in an addiction or bondage or a spiritual, uh, habitual sin kind of a thing. The hope for any believer, even when these things are manifesting, the hope is not that I'm going to do better. The hope is, and begins with Paul says, I have the righteousness of Christ. I have it now. Uh, again, this is the wonderment, you know, and the amazement, amazing thing about the gospel is as unrighteous as I know that I am, I, I can tell you with every certainty that the Father treats me, even in my unrighteousness. He treats me as if I'm as righteous as Jesus right now. I can live unashamedly before the Father because I live in the righteousness of Christ. I can, I can live unashamedly near the Father, which is the only place I'm going to get the power to overcome the habitual sins, the addictions. The only place I'm really going to get the power to change from the inside out is if I can live near Him unashamedly. Because until I can confess, until I can say, this is what I'm struggling with, then my pride will block the work 
of the Holy Spirit. I have certainty right now that the glory and beauty of my future with God is a certainty that I live in now. See, obedience out of fear or obedience for God's approval always limits your hope and does not allow the hope of the future, the certainty of the future, to be a spiritual generator now. You see, what many of us are doing is we're trying to obey God so that we can get answers to our prayers. We're trying to obey God so that we can get protection. But in a way, what we're doing is we're saying my obedience is conditional. I'm I'm using obedience as a means to get reward instead of recognizing I have the obedience of Christ and His life and His righteousness is my reward. See, grim determination, begrudging or slaving obedience, serving a boss is nowhere found in the New Testament. Jesus didn't say, Oh, great boss in the sky, hallowed be your name. Jesus said, My Father, our Father, who art in heaven. See, if if you're still in that place where you're trying to get a reward from a boss, then you're not in grace. If you're believing somehow I have to adjust my life, I have to adjust my actions so that God will bless me, then you're not understanding the gospel. See, it's not that I'm not convicted of how beautiful God is, how glorious and holy God is. It's not that. I'm convicted of that. And I'm also convicted of how ugly my sin is and how desperate I am. But my only hope is not to try to change the gap between His holiness and my unholiness. My only hope is to accept the righteousness of Christ as sufficient and to say, I can stand unashamedly before my Father because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You see, that's faith. That's faith that allows itself to work itself through love. I can live boldly, unashamedly, not because of me, but for Him. And you see, where is the Spirit at work? Well, Paul says the Spirit is at work Always, as we eagerly await this hope of the righteousness of God. One of my heroes is a pastor in uh, England. He's Welsh, but he was a pastor for many years in London. He was a doctor and a a pastor. His name was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in 1949... He, he never told this story. It was too precious. But his wife told this story after he, he went to be with the Lord. Dr. Jones became, Lloyd-Jones became burned out and burdened. And he took off from ministry and he went to the seaside. And he was in a, a, a time of depression, a time of spiritual malaise. And he just, he needed to be refilled and refreshed. It was so interesting. He tells the story, you know, I mean, he's putting himself in a pathway to be healed and putting himself in a time to linger with the Lord. But, but in the room where he was staying, there was a book. And the book simply had the word glory in the title. 
his eye fell upon that word glory. And God, in his grace, at his lowest point, filled the room with the glory. And then his heart began to fill with the glory. And he was renewed from the inside out. Um, And then he said it happened to him again and again until he could barely stand it. It was so much glory. There was so much of the goodness of God, so much of the beauty of God in that room. And it filled his heart and melted his heart. And he told his wife he never talked about it because it was too precious. It was too precious. See, what Paul is talking about here is the glory of God, the beauty of God, the wonder of God, the the love of God, the holiness of God, so filling your life that your heart melts. See, you can't just displace what you've counted on And you can't just displace what you've trusted in and relied upon without having something more beautiful take its place. The only way to get rid of an old affection is to have it expulsed by a new and true affection. And Paul is saying here, this is what freedom is. Freedom isn't a mixture of the old and the new but is a giving ourselves to the newness of our life in Christ so that, so that the old gets rejected, expelled, and the new takes its rightful place. I'm praying for each of you that this is, is happening to you as we, as we linger with the Lord together, that, that you're beginning to see that you can't mix faith and performance. You can't mix, you know, believing that if I pray more, if I'm obedient more, if I do this more, that somehow out of fear and pride, God is going to bless you instead of, instead of recognizing as messed up as we all are, as weak as we are, as places where we're still seeing the gap between his holiness and our unholiness, Christ has bridged that gap. And what he wants from you is not more willpower. What he wants from you is to accept the bridge that he's given you into a fullness experience of his glory. To have the old affection expelled with this new affection. Jesus plus nothing.